You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Welcome to this episode of the Disease Du Jour podcast on a review of equine herpes virus with Dr. Nathan Slovis. I'm your host, Kim Brown, editor of Equimanagement. The Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you in 2023 by Merck Animal Health. Nathan Slovis, DVM, DACVIM, certified hyperbaric technologist, is the director of the McGee Center at Haggard Equine Medical Institute in Kentucky. He is a native of Annapolis, Maryland. Slovis received his Bachelor of Science degree from Bradford University, his Doctor of Veterinary Medicine from Purdue University, interned at Arizona Equine Center, and completed his residency in internal medicine at the University of California, Davis. Thank you, Dr. Slovis, for joining us today on Disease Du Jour to give us a review of equine herpes virus. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, let's jump right in because I know this is always something on everyone's mind and we would love to pick your brain a little on this. So let's start with the HV1. So give us just a rundown of what it is, what it causes and what kind of your technique is or what your pattern is when you come up with a herpes virus case. Well, okay, so HV1, it seems to be getting most of the publicity, it seems like, because you know, in certain states, it's a reportable disease. You know, it seems like all the states, but I'm sure there's some that isn't. And so that's when people get nervous. It's, oh, my gosh, my horse has EHP1. Now the states can get involved. You know, what what do I have to do? You know, what are the different things that we can we can see here? And so the big thing is, anything, anytime you hear EHP1, people get nervous and go, oh, my gosh, my horse is going to get equine herpes myeloencephalopathy, so EHM, that's a neurological form. But, you know, we know from various studies, the problem is trying to get a good study that you can expose a horse to EHV1 and have them, like clockwork, develop a neurological disorder. You know, it's tough to get. And, you know, less than 10% of these horses that are affected with EHV1 are going to get neurologic. But yet, that's the first thing people think about. The same thing people think about as abortion. And the third thing, they think about respiratory aspect. But guess what? The respiratory aspect is going to cover you know, more than 90% of these cases if you take a poll. But it's something everybody gets all excited, all up in arms, is the, the neurological form. So those are pretty much the, the, the three forms that you think about. Um, and when it comes to HB1, the respiratory, it can look like any sort of respiratory. You know, it's a virus. It can look like influenza. Um, you know, it can look like rhinitis, you know, A or B in horses, pretty much fevers, coughing, nasal discharge. And as a veterinarian, you can't distinguish it between the others. You got to do a testing. And then one of the common testing nowadays, it's very accessible, is PCR. And back when I was in vet school, the big thing is to test them is nasopharyngeal, you know, swab, literally uh, a, a large, almost looks like a you know, huge Q-tip that you end up sitting up into their pharynx and test. But nowadays, with the group at, at, uh, that they showed at Davis, you only need a nasal swab. So now it's easier, you know, veterinarians don't feel intimidated by, you know, the, these large, uh, you know, nasopharyngeal swabs. 
So that's something we can easily do if you if you're concerned, or you see an increased number of horses having fevers, increased incidence of coughing, what have you, and you want to know what's going on, and you want to see how well your vaccine program is working. You know, you you need to test it to try to figure out what it is, and so. The interesting thing about the equine herpes virus, just like in humans, it can lay latent. And we did a study, we as in the University of Kentucky Diagnostic Lab, it was like 2008, 2009, I believe. They looked at uh, at broodmares coming to the diagnostic lab. And this is for necropsy, so it's kind of a biased group, but it's just routine mares. They, they had other issues going on. And they looked at the submandibular lymph node. And they noticed, I think they looked, they looked at 133 mares. Just over 50% of them had EHV1. Wow. On their submandibular lymph nodes. Again, it's latent. And out of those, again, we can start talking about the different kinds of equine herpes virus. You know, the mutant strain. You know, they call it ORF30. You know, this open, um, uh, you know, ORF30. Uh, and the, the mutant strain, and that is, you know, people get nervous because that can cause a neurological form. So, you know, and ORF, it stands for open reading frame 30, and that's a genetic aspect. There's a change there. I'm going to get into it, but there's a change there that can make your animal more susceptible to neurological form versus abortion form. And so 18% of them had that. But come on, you know, we, we said the chance of you having neurological signs is less than 10%, but yet 18% of these animals had it. So when they try to look at the statistics on that with what they got from the diagnostic lab, they estimated 8% of the Kentucky broodmares have some have the ORF 30 neurological strain subclinical. But we don't have 8% of our population get neurological signs of herpes. Yeah. So that's kind of that's kind of interesting uh, there, but we think of you know herpes, and when I started thinking about oh my gosh, do I have neurological strain or non neurological strain? Again, we're talking about a single point mutation uh, at ORF thirty. Um, I don't really get down into the weeds, whatever it's neurological or non neurological strain, because any type of AHV one can cause neural you know neural Logical sign. So everybody goes, oh, well, you got neurological strain versus non-neurological strain. I don't care. If it's equine herpes virus and your animal's neurologic, well, guess what? I don't care about the strain. And that's just me. So so that's a um, you know kind of an interesting concept that's come out that everybody jumped on the bandwagon for. But I think the bottom line is any any strain can cause it. And just remember that. You know, and then you try to think, you try to look into this a little more and just try to look at, you know, how do some of these animals get, you know, CNS signs? You know, what actually happens? And it depends on the affinity of the strain. I know we talk about that already, neurological form versus non-neurological form. So this can happen either in the uterus or the central nervous system. But what are herpes like? You know, they infect. You know, mononuclear cells, they say, you know, leuco, you know, lymphocytes. And they have a predisposition, you know, to attach to endothelial cells. So endothelium is any 
you know, all your blood vessels have endothelium. And then it causes an inflammatory cascade. You can occur there. You get a vasculitis. Then it's almost like a stroke model. Then you get a thrombosis. You get secondary ischemic injury. It's like the equine stroke. You know, and you, know, you can have some direct infection of the neurons. You know, they lay latent in there. You could have some direct infection, but a lot of times it's going to be the, the ischemic injury that can occur there. And that's what we're worried about. So the big thing is, if your animal is diagnosed with EHV1, and let's say there's some other animals on the farm that, that have been neurologically affected, you know, what can we do to help decrease the incidence of them developing EHM? And so there's been some other studies out there. Um, Dr. Lutz at, at the uh, Gluck Institute has shown that if you start using anti-inflammatories, you can decrease the affinity of these or of the lymphocytes to get on the endothelial cells. So therefore, decrease the inflammation that can occur there. So that's one thing that we found. So just use of uh, any of your non-steroidals, you can even use de de even your steroidals, you know, dexamethasone, uh, Equiox, um, Clinix and Megalamine, you know, can, can be used. And then there is a, a study that was pointing out the use of heparin yeah. to help try to decrease the, you know, the hypercoagulability of these animals. Because there was another study that was done and forgive me, um, I forgot where exactly where the study was, but it was it was performed looking at animals that had, that were exposed to EHV one, and they noticed these animals were hypercoagulable compared to their controls. However, those animals statistically were no in, in regards to. The statistic aspect of the hypercoagulable ability state wasn't significant between the two groups, the ones that were affected EHB1 and stuff. But again, they did notice that they were hypercoagulable, and that was done in EVJ. And okay. so there was a significance of that, you know, still a question, question but people were giving these animals uh, heparin. And that could be unfractionated heparin, a low molecular weight heparin, just regular heparin that you can get, that we make hep flush with, uh, use of aspirin, you know, any of these medications that can be used to help decrease the hypercoagulability of these animals. So if this animal is all of a sudden showing some mild neurological signs, sometimes put them on these, or these medications, it may be, again, there hasn't been any real in-depth study here, you know, may help decrease the incidence of your herpes developing or worsening the signs of equine herpes myeloencephalopathy. And so uh, that's a big thing that, you know, that you'll see a lot of practitioners start to use more and more is if they start having uh, animals that are neurologic and mild, we'll, we'll put them on heparin. It doesn't seem to do any harm. Put them on aspirin. The group in Europe, you talk to Europeans, they like to use aspirin more than heparin. These Americans tend to use more heparin than aspirin. And it seems like when you talk to, to people, my colleagues, they feel like they get success either way. So which means we still don't know which one's better, you know, at, at the end of the day. But you'll you'll see us um you'll hear about that, you know, us using those uh medications that help 
mitigate the issues. And then the big question is, oh my gosh, now I got a, uh, you know, my, the horse next to me had neurological form of EHV1. And now my horse, I want to prevent any chance of them getting, first of all, getting equine herpes. And then second of all, getting neurological form, you know, what can I do? And so do you vaccinate? You know, there's a theory that these animals may be over vaccinated. Maybe that may predispose animals to getting um, neurological form of, of herpes. Where they... And then there's um, some thoughts, too. Do you just put them on, you know, medications to prevent you from getting herpes? So valcyclovir or acyclovir. Usually we go valcyclovir. So antiviral medications. Do you do that prophylactically? I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Or and then do you do also do you do valcyclovir and do you do the aspirin or heparin? I don't think there's anything wrong if you want to do the aspirin. Again, anything anti-inflammatory or anti-inflammatory, such as uh banamine, we said, to help you know reduce the affinity of the uh, lymphocytes to the endothelial lining. So those are some things that you, you know, some some things that may be able to be done prophylactically. And, and of course, isolate the animals that are known to be positive for the, for equine herpes virus. If it's type 1 or type 4 or whatever, isolate them. You don't want them in your general population. If they're positive, get them out of there. Because you want to decrease this sort of shedding. That's yeah. a big thing there, too. You know, how long do they shed, Doc? You know, that's a big <laughs> thing is, is that once they get exposed, when can you release them from quarantine? You know, I mean, when can you? I mean, the race people want to know. You know, your show people want to know. You know, they say quarantine forever. You know, what's the big thing? Well, the big thing is with, with herpes virus is that they can start shedding pretty soon after exposure within a day or so. And they can shed 7 to 14 days. Now, I know the group in Ohio, when they had the Finley University was exposed, they said they could shed up to 19 days. Wow. So, so yeah, and, and so it used to be a lot of the regulatory people would say, guess what? You cannot be released for quarantine for at least 21 days. doesn't matter if your animals are negative or not. We're not taking a chance in 21 days. And then after the 21 days, we got we to gotta end up testing your horse to make sure their herpes negative. And if they are, on the whole blood as well as, you know, nasal secretions, then it can be released. But nowadays, it actually started with, with uh, Florida. Uh, the state veterinarian down there, you know, said, boy, you know, most of the shedding is 14 days. You know, it was rare that you see you hear about these 19 to 21 days. Maybe we're overdoing it. We're losing money for our industry in regards to not only horse racing, but, you know, sport horse, what have you, whatever mm -hmm. discipline you're in. Maybe we're just being overly cautious. We've learned a lot over these years. I'm going to do 14 days. And the state of Kentucky at that time said, hey, you know, well, we're going to stay at 21 days until, you know, let's watch what Florida does. And Florida had no issues for several years. So now Florida, now Kentucky's adopted that many, you know, several years ago. Then now if your animal is positive, here's the scenario. If your animal's positive, it gets quarantined. And then everybody else, and I'm talking about, you know, um, you know, specifically the, the neurological is, is, you know, aspect. You know, if you got a positive neurological patient, um, 
you know, what they'll end up doing is having to isolate that animal either to another aspect of the, of the farm or into a referral hospital. And then they'll test every animal in that facility that may have been exposed. That could be two animals, that could be 20, it could be 30. And if they're negative, then they can hang tight there and they watch temperatures. Because these animals, before they become neurologic, you know, they're going to have a fever. Now, and so, you know, I, I rarely get an animal that's neurologic does not have a fever. So just remember that. And then if these animals, they'll watch temperatures. And if you don't have any sort of fevers over a 14-day period, again, every state has a different regulation. But, you know, after 14 days, then you can get retested. And you can end up, and if you're negative, you can get out of quarantine. And then some veterinarians will even go that you can, you have permission to work on a track. If you have tested negative and your horse does not have fevers, then they can, uh, they, they, they set uh, on, the, on the racetrack, for instance, they'll set a certain time that these horses can go onto the track. That's usually after everybody else is done. You can't use a pony horse. You can't have outriders. No, outriders are there for safety, but you can't ask the outrider to help you. You know, help yeah. you try to get to the starting gate. You know, they're going to let you really work the starting gates. And these are different ways that you can help, you know, keep the horses active, but yet not put animals at risk. And so that's some of the, that's some of the things you can do here. A big thing is with abortions. Like, say we got equine herpes, but now we talk about the neurological form. We talk about treatment. I'm not going to go too in depth on the treatment aspect, but but I you know I gave you sort of a to wet your palate of some of the things we do here. Today's Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you by Banamine, Flunix and Meglamine injection from Merck Animal Health. The pioneer NSAID for horses in the U.S., Banamine goes to work quickly to alleviate pain and inflammation from musculoskeletal disorders and visceral pain from colic to horses in your care. Don't get caught on call without Banamine. Find out more at MerckAnimalHealthUSA.com. Do not use banamine in horses intended for human consumption. The effect of banamine paste on pregnancy has not been determined. See product label for complete safety information. Now, the abortion one is, you know, what do you do for those? You know, you know what we recommend here is if you have an abortion, then we'll end up vaccinating with one of the, um, you know, EHV-1 abortion vaccines. Because usually they have a higher antigenic load in their vaccine compared to the vaccines that may have four or five different products in there. You know, these are specifically made for to prevent abortion in, in uh, mares against EHV-1, and they have a higher antigenic load. So we'll, we'll tend to revaccinate the, the animals if there's an abortion on the farm known to be equine herpes. We'll end up, if we have a luxury, whatever paddock they may have aborted in, because a lot of it, the Equine herpes virus, one, is going to be in the placenta and in the amniotic allantoid fluid. And if these animals, usually when they abort, what happens? All the mares, you know, gather around, start sniffing, licking the placenta. You know, they can be exposed. So ideally, you like to quarantine a paddock. But majority of the time, you don't have other paddocks to put these mares in. So you just kind of keep them in their little paddock. You make sure you don't try to play musical chairs, so to speak, with stalls, paddocks. Continue them exposed. The bad thing is, you may not know for weeks later 
Because, you know, if, if they're affected, you can ultrasound. I might try to ultrasound them, look at biophysical profiles. You can tell which ones are going to abort and not. So one thing is, when increasing the, you know, the vaccination, we'll put them on valcyclovir, if, if, depending on the value of the fetus and the mare. Um, and so we'll do a preventative, and that may be up to two weeks. Now, there's been no studies that says that it will penetrate into that uterus and into the fetus, but you know, um, you know, it could help. You know, that's probably the best option you got. And then there's some groups that will end up uh, giving these animals a lysine, which is just a uh, a product get over the counter. A lot of different companies may have it, and it's just a, a interfere with replication of the virus. And that's up for debate. There hasn't been really any really good studies on that. But it has been shown that lysine can can uh, affect the replication. And there's all different doses out there. For instance, um, the dose that I tend to use when you talk about the you talk about lysine, uh, you're looking at about 12 grams orally once a day. You know some of the, some of the, some of the reports that are out there. And again, it's over the counter. It does no harm. So does it help? You know, I like to see more studies on that, but yeah. that's something else you, you can end up doing for for that. And again, and then the question is, well, how long should I separate my mare that just aborted? Yeah. You know, and that and that's the big debate. Um, you know, usually mares uteruses involute within seven days, you know, and hence that's why you can do full heat breath breeding on these mares. So usually I tell people for, you know, at least two weeks, let the uterus involute. As long as she's not dirty, you know, usually the vet's going to be flushing them sometimes after these uh, abortions because they have other issues that may be going yeah. on with these mares. Again, the vet decides, I say every bit of two weeks. And what I do recommend is that they can also test the mare. It's interesting because some of these mares, we've had abortions. I think, well, they were exposed a while ago. They're not still shedding. Well, you test them, well, some of these mares should be still shedding. Wow. So and so we've tested them and I've gone to abortion outbreaks and I've tested them and I'll test the, the animal that did abort and then I'll test all of her cohorts and then I try to divide them up into separate groups if I can. Because some of these animals may be shedding. And so that's something else that can be utilized to determine when they can be out of quarantine. You know, wait until that uterus involutes. And then at the same time, you know, if um if the client can afford it, you know, you know, test them and, and get a nasal swab. And, and usually, as I said, what do we say about shedding? We talked about before for, for you know, either 14 days. So that's why we say the two weeks quarantine. But it doesn't hurt to, to test them if you, want, if you wish. And it's not a bad idea. Just yeah. have a big, big breeding farm. Yeah. So, yeah. so that so that's pretty much. Uh, and those are the alpha herpes. I guess I never mentioned that. Yeah. But you know, when you think of alpha herpes, it's type one and type four. Okay. And let's go because let's. That's a great segue because there are some other herpes viruses that horses get. They're not as common, and the gamma herpes viruses. So. Oh yeah. And let's maybe just very quickly walk through them. That's EHV two and five, right? Correct. Yep. So when you think about those, yep, you think of two and five, and they're they're interesting in their own right. 
you know, when you think about the gamma herpes. But, you know, it's interesting. You know, donkeys can get exposed to different herpes virus. They have their own alpha and gamma herpes virus. And then there's alpha, alpha uh, herpes viruses of zebras and gazelles. And that's EHV9. Because when I first went to vet school, they said, oh, yeah, there's only nine types. Herpes viruses known to infect horses. Well, now there's 12. We've isolated some more herpes viruses that can affect donkeys. And then they isolate that one from the gazelle and zebras. So wow. you, got, you got several more going on. But again, that's just kind of fun facts. But for us, the gamma herpes virus, you're looking at type 2 and type 5. And that is a huge debate. Type 2, you think of keratoconjunctivitis. Uh, type 5, some respiratory issues. Uh, but type 2, you, can, you know, you can start thinking of the eyes. Um, you see... Yeah. As I said, conjunctivitis. In type 5, you see some just vague uh, respiratory signs. It depends who you end up talking to because I got, I have people that um, here in Kentucky that swear type 2 and type 5 can cause respiratory disease in, in foals, especially uh, unweaned foals or just recently weaned foals. And, you know, we, we've seen that by themselves, you know, causing some fevers, some upper airway disease, some lymphadenopathy with a type 2 and 5. I'm now I'm talking about younger animals right now. We'll right. get to type 5 later for the older animals. But right now, um, and so the debate is, are they, do they cause primary disease or are they like another herpes virus we talk about? This is a human equine herpes virus for Epstein-Barr. Mononucleosis, you know, everything's Epstein-Barr getting mono. You know, you get lethargic as a human. Now, I've had mono. You know, I mean, I was lethargic during my internship. I was lethargic, fevers. I don't know what the heck hit me. You know, I thought I got exposed to salmonella from an animal I was treating. Oh. I, went to the, I was in Arizona. I went to the Mayo Clinic. Went to the infectious disease specialist. I, I just called myself in. I said, this is Dr. Slovis referring myself in. And I got right <laughs> to him. Because I don't know, what, did I have TB? I don't know what that yeah. had. You know, the time I was down and out having 105 fevers for three days, and I thought, I better oh check my myself gosh. in. Well, it turned out, lo and behold, just mono. But you know, that can be immunosuppressive. So do these viruses, which you can find in almost, if you, if you search for equine herpes virus 2 and 5 in a young animal, you'll find it, you know, 90% of the time. But do they cause immunosuppressive aspects, like you think about, Epstein-Barr in humans, and predisposing for other infections. And that was a big thing, that a lot of these animals that have EHV 2 and 5, you find that were sick, they also had secondary infections like strep zone, pneumonia, or other issues these foals may have. And then after, all of a sudden, you clear them of their pneumonia, and they do five for a week, and then they get another disease. You know, they get another, now, oh, now I got a tinnabacillus pneumonia. And they're like, what the heck's going on? These animals are immunocompromised. And so what you tend to do is get them outside, get them out of the stall because it's so dusty and just all the different antigens they're exposed to in the stall. They develop so much mucus. They're, you know, they got hyper-responsive airways and it just sets them up for infection after infection after infection. We've investigated this with Gluck and with a bunch of other people. We still don't have answers of why, um, you know, you know, these animals get recurrent infections, but y'all, you keep, you know, you do tend to see type two or type five or you know, usually both of them together 
And is that a perfect storm for immunosuppression? I, I don't know. More studies need to yeah. come out that uh, smarter people than I, but that we tend we tend to see them here. But usually there's a co-infection. I've yet to see them by themselves. But I know some of my colleagues here that they swear up and down, yes, that they have. So Lutz at Gluck is helping us out with that, where we're sending them samples and trying to understand this these gamma herpes viruses a little a little more. And I know the group in Europe is looking at it. So there's a lot of there's a lot of um some debate on there. But the interesting yeah. is, you know, in one talk I was listening to that EHV2 is higher in Icelandic ponies than any than, and can you believe that? There are higher incidents in Icelandic ponies, even though they're free of EHV1. And most of the foals are less than 10 days of age when they start looking for it. Wow. So, you know, it's, it's out there. And foals are exposed early in life to this within days. Yeah. And, and they'll find in the trigeminal nerve. They're finding the submandibular you know, lymph nodes. They're finding lymphocytes. But the big thing is that we have a concern. That's foals. But for adults, HV5, you think of, you know, multinodular fibrosis pulmonary aspect in, in adult horses. And that's just a, you know, a very fatal disease. And the problem with these uh, gamma herpes viruses is just find a good antiviral. There's debates as valcyclovir doesn't work. That's a potent antiviral in our hands. But yeah, we still use it because it feels like we're doing something for these you know, pulmonary nodular fibrosis. We put them on corticosteroids, reduce any inflammation that is occurring because of these viruses that may be predisposing to then, uh, you know, get fibrosis of their lungs. But that's when you start thinking about adults is EHV5. And, and what do I treat these animals with is corticosteroids, valcyclovir, um, bronchodilators if we have to, some expectorants if we need to, and just tincture of time. And we've done some miracles, you know, on animals that were pregnant with high dose of corticosteroids. Wow. On these animals and try to get them done. And they're on a, on a course of that for several months. Wow. You know, if you have a chance for survival, you know, it just depends on the degree. Yeah. And just because I mean, you find HV5 in an adult horse doesn't mean they're going to get pulmonary fibrosis. Because I said a lot of it, you can find it. If you look for it, you can find it. But there's something else that triggers it. And, and you know, well, what is it? I don't know. Okay. And we, we, we have to mention this, although before we started this podcast, I have to say that I, I asked Dr. Slovis if we really should even mention, you know, some of this uh, other stuff. But, you know, um, you very rarely see these, right? Yeah, yeah, I did not too. Type uh, pulmonary equine pulmonary multinodular fibrosis. You know, and, and I got a bias group. You know, I'll see two or three a year, or you know, our you know my, my colleagues and myself. Um, but yeah, it isn't that common in, in adult horses. It's out there, but it's not a common entity in your in your practice. You know, another one we won't see a lot of, at least here, is EHV three choroidal exanthema. So you get those lesions. Ulcerative lesions of the vulva or the penis of a stallion, you know, we're lucky we don't see it here. A lot of it is hygiene. Look how they're preparing these mares and the stallions for, for breeding. 
Um, so I, I've been lucky. I've not seen many of that. And, you know, I've been in Kentucky for almost 25 years. And I don't see it. I've seen it more when I've been called out to investigate infectious diseases, you know, in Europe. And, um, you know, a lot of it comes out of hygiene. I look how they're preparing the mare and how they're contaminating yeah. their equipment. And that's a big thing. So it's usually, you know, humans have a big factor of this, too, on the big breeding farms. Well, I certainly do appreciate you joining us today to, to just walk us through kind of this review of herpes virus. And I know this is things that there's books written on this, but it was really nice to pick your brain a little bit today, Dr. Slovis. So oh, thank well, you very much. And we also want to thank our audience for listening to us today. And a special thanks to our 2023 sponsor, Merck Animal Health, who gives us the opportunity to have these discussions. And if you have any questions or suggestions for the podcast, send an email to me at kbrown, that's the letter K, brown, at equinenetwork.com. <laughs>